Well, let's begin this morning by just acknowledging that Tracy absolutely nailed the inflection on that passage. And um, it's going to be helpful for us in seeing the the primary theme here in John 7. So um, maybe the best way to get to that theme is this. I've used, I would argue, a lot of restraint over the last three years as a pastor because after seeing the musical Hamilton with my wife in Chicago, I've only used it as an illustration one time. One time. And um, there's a lot of good illustrative material in that musical, you guys. I didn't want it to become what perhaps the Lord of the Rings has become in my preaching, where you guys start now rolling your eyes every time I, I use the word Tolkien. But, um, but I want to reference Hamilton this morning because one of the primary themes in this musical, whether you've seen it or not, I don't know how familiar you are with the story. It's a primary theme in, in the musical, but it's also acknowledged by historians as being an accurate theme that played out in history between Hamilton and Aaron Burr. And it's the relation between unity and division. In what way do unity and division work together? Well, here you have Alexander Hamilton, right? The protagonist in the musical, obviously. But even throughout history, you have Alexander Hamilton attempting to gather, what's he doing? Attempting to gather a united front. A united front in the war effort against the British. Attempting to gather a united front in favor of the U.S. Constitution, offering, authoring 51 of the 85 essays in its defense, the Federalist Papers. Wants to gain a united front in growing a new nation. And as he attempts to do this, the way in which Hamilton tries to grow this united front is by clearly marking out, you know, this is where I stand. Like, this is where I stand on a particular issue. This is what I believe. Saying exactly what he's thinking, you know. Not wavering out of fear of what others are going to say about him. Not wavering out of fear of being disliked. Not being popular, right? But just, this is, this is what it is. On the other hand... However, you have Aaron Burr, and in history, you know, the, the antagonist in the musical. In history, we actually don't know a lot about what Burr thought about things like the Federalist Papers, um, some of the other things that are in the musical, but we do know that he, he's a far more calculating politician who attempts to form a cheaper version of unity by not really taking a stand on much of anything at all out of a fear that he'd lose support, lose votes, lose an opportunity to advance politically, right? And so you actually have these exchanges in the musical that I find super helpful. Uh, many of them take creative license. It's impossible to write a musical like this without doing that, right? But that are based on actual themes, again, in history. But these, the reason that I, I enjoy the exchanges is because they help us They're included in order to draw out this distinction between convictional leadership that recognizes true unity to be something that necessarily causes division, all right? Hamilton, in a lot of ways, is a play about convictional leadership on the one hand, and a leadership that so lacks any conviction out of a fear of any form of division that you actually don't know what's believed by the leaders. What do you actually think, right? And so one example of an exchange like this is when Hamilton wants to directly address this guy, Samuel Seabury. He was a real person, British loyalist, who was well known for feuding with Hamilton, uh, disparaging the actions of the Continental Congress and declaring independence. 
And in the musical, you know, so Burr says to Hamilton, do you want to advance? Like, do you want to get ahead? Here's how you do it. Talk less. Smile more. Right? Don't express what you're actually thinking and feeling so often. It doesn't help you. And so when Seabury starts, he shows up and he's refuting the war efforts. He's refuting the Revolutionary War. He's saying we should stay loyal to the crown. Hamilton's instinct is to actually debate him publicly. But Burr, in the musical, tries to hold him back. He says, whoa, whoa, let it be. Let him be. Don't engage. But after Hamilton debates him, Burr pleads with Hamilton to stop. And Hamilton responds by saying... Burr, I'd rather be divisive than indecisive. Drop the niceties. I'd rather be divisive than indecisive. In other words, if we're going to form unity, what's unity for if it's not to gather around that which is good, that which is true? What's it for if it's completely absent our convictions? And so Hamilton keeps asking Burr, there's this theme throughout the musical, keeps asking, what do you stall for? Why, why do you keep coming up just to the edge of sharing what your conviction is, but then pulling back? What do you stall for? If you stand for nothing, Burr, what will you fall for? If you stand for nothing, what will you fall for? He's saying, look, there is an important corollary between unity and division. Not just contrast, not just a difference in distinction, but a corollary between them. True unity Unity around our convictions. Unity around what is centrally important will always create some division. It has to. And false unity, unity that fears any kind of division and so you can't really tell what it believes, it actually doesn't create unity and it forms a way more division, right? So, all right, we see this theme developing clearly in John 7. 25 to 36. So look there with me now, and actually, let me just say too, before I get started, we're at that point in John where two things are going to start happening. First, I'm going to introduce a theme, and then you'll see the theme develop, uh, introduced again two weeks later, and then again, you know, like three weeks later, and you'll be like, have we preached through this text before? Uh, no, right? But this kind of repetition is good. John's repeating himself a lot. And, and so I'm not trying to steal the thunder of the individual who's preaching uh, starting in verse 40. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be out of town. But um, we're going to see division among the people again. So these themes are going to be developed. But if you remember from last week, Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles. For reference sake, in terms of timeline, it's about six months after the feeding of the 5,000. So do you remember that? This is like a handful of weeks ago I preached on... The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus feeding the 5,000, and then we talked a little bit about, you know, him walking on water, and then there's a day later, he's having this conversation with um, the Jewish people where he's making these controversial statements that make them want to leave, okay, and so they, they start to go, all right, that's six months ago in the text, just so that, so that we can have some timeline here, and if you remember from Paul's excellent teaching last week, and, and I just want to say thanks to him, very thoughtful pastoral, helpful teaching last week, Jesus continues to demand a response. He's demanding a, re a response related to who he is, what, he, what, he, what it is that he's come to do. So this question that Paul brought up last week that, you know, that, that we've seen already that continues to come to the forefront, 
that's so helpful for us. Whether you're here this morning and you're, a skeptical of, you're, you're skeptical of the claims of Christianity, whether you're here and you grew up in the church, this question continues to be important to us. It's the question of how are we to respond to Jesus? What are we to do about Jesus? And it continues to emerge again and again. And as Paul pointed out so well last week, I'm not going to say it as well as he did, but our response to Jesus is ultimately indicative of, our, of the, the way we see and understand life itself. The way we see and understand Jesus is the way that we'll see and understand life. In other words, if you have this claim from Jesus about who he is, and the demand is that people either believe him or reject him. There's not really a middle ground here in John's gospel. He's going to continually move forward in a way that makes us see with this claim comes the necessity of a response. All right. And so while Jesus has clearly come in order to bring unity around the gospel, unity around who he is, unity around what it is that he's come to do, he's also come by necessity to bring division. So we see this theme of gospel unity and division as our sermon is titled. We see that theme in three sections in the text. So there's really going to be three sections that when put together, we kind of see the narrative flow, like the story of the passage, the narrative of the passage. And from that, we can really see this and understand this central theme about gospel unity and division and how these things correlate. So let's begin verses 25 to 27, the first section of the text. Some of the people of Jerusalem, so stop there real, just real fast, note the context. All right, didn't get very far. Listen, just note the context. Who's he talking to? All right, let's keep going. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Here we see, first of all, and you'll see it reflected in your notes in the liturgy packet, we see skepticism revisited. Skepticism revisited. Because we've already noted, you know, this deep skepticism from the people. And even from within some of his disciples who left in chapter 6. Like some of this larger group of disciples that heard this teaching and it was too hard. Right? Not hard to understand, but hard to accept. So they left. There's been this skepticism. But that skepticism was raised to a new level last week. And really that's another theme in John where now like... The hostility to Jesus, the skeptical responses to Jesus just keeps like escalating week after week after week. We see that happening last week in which we see various responses to Jesus from his own family, from the Galileans who've observed his ministry up to this point. And they've been deeply skeptical of his claims, but here we find a different kind of skepticism because there are some things that Jesus has said that this group of people that he addresses now will not take any umbrage with at all. In fact, they'll, they'll validate its truthfulness. And we see the reason for the difference in the skepticism in the text. But just to back up a bit first, if you remember from last week, Jesus asks the crowd, why do you seek to kill me? Why do you seek to kill me? And do you remember the crowd responds to that in a way that demonstrates their surprise at the, the question? You know, they're looking around at each other. And they're like, do you have a demon? Who said that? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who's, who's seeking to kill you? You know, time out. Like, overreaction much, Jesus? Like, is a little dramatic? 
Who do you, none of us said anything like that. They're surprised. They're caught off guard maybe a little bit. But this crowd in the text this morning that now seeks to chime in on what Jesus has been saying at this Feast of Tabernacles is described by the author here in verse 25, and this is why I had you press pause for a minute, as people of Jerusalem. Unlike the Galileans, they come from Jerusalem. Okay. They're, they're described as people from Jerusalem. And unlike these Galileans who are surprised to hear Jesus talk about how others are seeking to kill him, these people from Jerusalem, they know what's going on. Like, they know the score a little bit more. They're, in other words, because they live in Jerusalem, because they, see a, they have a front row seat to this every day, they're well aware of the way their leaders work in Jerusalem, what they're probably thinking about Jesus, and what they're very likely to do about it. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man who they seek to kill? Right? So unlike the people from last week, here they have no doubt the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus. They're not surprised by that. They're not caught off guard. What does catch them off guard, however, two things that actually is pretty miraculous. What does surprise them is that Jesus is so bold with his proclamations, even in the face of such a threat, you know? Like if the police show up at somebody's house and they're like, if, sir, if you keep doing this, we're going to have to take you to prison. The, the likely response is, okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll disengage from that, right? Here you have the religious leaders threatening death. And it's a credible threat, and it's one that they know Jesus is aware of, because in the text last week, he said as much. Why are you seeking to kill me? You know? They know it's a serious threat, but they also don't see Jesus diverting the way one would expect when someone's life is on the line. So they say in verse 26, and here he is speaking openly. The man they wanted to kill for saying stuff like this keeps saying stuff like this. Keeps openly making claims that make him equal with God, that proclaim his Messiahship. You know, they didn't want Jesus to even be a, if you remember from last week, they don't want Jesus to even be a topic of conversation. They're trying to shut down any conversation about Jesus, period. Let alone, as we'll see in a little bit, mutterings about his messiahship and so even more surprising then number two in this crowd is the reality that the jewish leaders aren't doing anything about it so they're surprised that jesus is being so bold in his proclamations even when the threat's so credible but they're also surprised because the jewish leaders are kind of from their perspective sitting on their hands look at verse 26 again and here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him so they postulate a reason, you know. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? In other words, why don't they immediately arrest him for saying these things? I mean, he's on the record. He's in Jerusalem. He's at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's teaching these things. They don't want people even talking about him, and yet here he is once again proclaiming Messiahship. Maybe the reason is that they've actually weighed the evidence for themselves and they've come, believe, come to believe, at least in private, at least behind closed doors, amongst themselves, when nobody else is listening, they've come to believe that he actually is who he claims to be. <clears throat> Maybe they know. And this is actually the first time in John's Gospel account in which we see that given as a reason, a, po a possible reason from the people. But you know how sometimes we often speak an idea out loud and we're just talking with friends, about any topic, openly, 
openly either debating or just sharing our thoughts, and we say something out loud and we immediately kind of regret it, or we immediately say, like, oh, never mind, that was, that was a stupid idea, even if it's true, because of the way it sounds after we say it out loud. More or less, that's what happens here because they immediately dismiss their own claim. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Right? The reason they dismiss it is because they're quite sure that when the Messiah comes, nobody will be able to trace him to a particular mom or dad or hometown. They're quite sure that they can trace Jesus back to his parents, back to his hometown. Therefore, knowing where he comes from, right? Knowing where he comes from. And it's interesting because we've seen this theme too, right? Do you remember? <clears throat> Do you remember Nicodemus? talking with Jesus in chapter 3. Remember how he opens that conversation? He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. What does he immediately try to claim? Knowledge about Jesus. That he knows that he can stand over against Jesus as judge. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when the people are talking to Jesus and they're like, wait a minute, isn't this, isn't this Mary's boy? We know his family. We know he's a, he's a Nazarene. He's, he's a Galilean like us, this is not someone who is unknown to us. And yet he's claiming to be greater than us. And so there's all this belief from the people that they're actually very much able to stand as judge over against Jesus. But even more than that, you know, we actually see the same perspective that, you know, if, if we can trace this person back to his parents and hometown, then certainly he couldn't be the Messiah. It's a popular first century Jewish view. We see it in other gospel accounts as well. You know, not just John's account. Popular within first century Israel, but you know what? You know where it's not found? The Old Testament. And actually, if you're paying attention to places like Zechariah as we preached through, what will you come to see? That you should expect that the Messiah is going to be born into this world as a man and yet be God. Right? We had these texts in Zechariah where it was like this Messiah is being described in ways that can only, be, words that can only be used as a man, he's a king of Israel, a man, a person. And yet, in terms that would be blasphemous to describe anyone other than Yahweh himself. So he's Yahweh, but he's man, right? So you, you see this throughout the scriptures if you're paying attention. And yet in first century Israel, there's just no discernment. What I mean is, it was very easy. For, it, Israel was very susceptible to false teaching. Because there was a tradition. There were rabbis who would come and say, well, in order to keep people from breaking law, we'll add more law. It's on, law on top of the scriptures. We'll add our own laws. We'll add our own traditions. We'll add our own teachings. And so a clever rabbi would come along and say something. And it would, if it became popular, it would become a popular teaching of the day. And here we have an example of that in which that popular teaching keeps them from seeing Jesus. And you know, this is true for us too. Like, we need discernment among God's people. Right now in the life of the church, we need discernment. There are many clever and novel teachings abounding. Many claims that are being made that on the face of it we might hear and say, oh, that sounds, I've, I've never heard that before. You know, I've never heard that that word means that. And oh, I didn't know that that was referring to that. Many new and novel teachings that can catch fire and actually um, catch popularity, okay, and actually divert us from gospel, 
keep us from seeing Jesus. And that's even more now, you know, like, I think it's both good, like beneficial and hard in these ways that we have, you know, uh, instant media at our fingertips, that we have YouTube. The good part of it is never before have we been able to have the access of faithful gospel exposition from faithful guys like Alistair Begg, you know, Tim Keller, D.A. Carson, at our fingertips like that, just logging on. At the same time, everyone's got a YouTube channel, right? And so it's easy to log on to YouTube and ask a question about the Bible, and I'm telling you guys, you know, a lot of self-proclaimed experts, right? And the same is true even with like a book will come out and the book will make some novel claim using some Old Testament word or, you know, some Hebrew word or some Greek word out of context usually, you know, and it sounds plausible enough on the face of it, but it's really usually a word used out of context in a passage that's very, uh, it's just not straightforward, you know, and it's an obscure passage. And we use this text to say something that it was never intended to say. And all of a sudden, what happens is we start being diverted. Books, YouTube, blogs starts diverting us from gospel. Keeps us from seeing gospel because we start focusing on things that aren't true. And by the way, there are secular and religious examples of this. You know, I, there's this popular podcaster who began making the claim a number of years ago that he read this book by a scholar. It's, it's genuine. A book written by someone... Uh, I think in the 1970s and 80s about how the early church actually, uh, all the imagery in the New Testament scriptures that we find related to the early church was, was actually all about the symbol of mushrooms and psychedelics, right? And so the experiences of the early church as it relates to Jesus were experiences of a community tripping out together. Um, now, do, do, you, do you find... Do you find that view reflected in contemporary scholarship, whether liberal or conservative? No, right? Is it even close to the majority view? But, you know, somebody comes along and they say, this is a plausible view, and there's a viewership. And so together people are like, this is a plausible view, and it's not too far down the road when you start hearing somebody make a claim, and now all of a sudden people bring it into conversation as though it's factual. They say, oh, yeah, didn't you hear about this? Oh, it was debunked a long time ago. The New Testament was demonstrated a long time ago that it was just a group of people tripping out on mushrooms, right? And so, so, okay, there's secular and religious ways of doing this. We need discernment. Where's discernment found? Jesus is where discernment is found. The scriptures is where discernment is found. The Holy Spirit that you have, if you're a believer in Jesus, can grant you discernment. Pastors, teachers have been given to the church to help us with our discernment. And so I, you know, this is important. The lack of discernment here keeps them from seeing Jesus. And that's what brings us, right? Getting a little ahead of myself, but it leads from skepticism revisited. There's a new kind of skepticism to ignorance exposed. Now, number two, verses 28 and 29. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him. For I come from him, and he sent me. Okay, so before getting into what Jesus says, let me just, it's, I think, and what he does in the text, once again, I think it's important to talk about what he doesn't do. Especially since we're, ta we're talking about this theme of gospel unity and division. Look at how Jesus doesn't try to achieve unity around his gospel, around who he claims to be. 
Once again, as we already saw a chapter earlier, he doesn't placate. He doesn't back off from his previous stance. He doesn't say, well, we can have different views on who I am, agree to disagree, and I'll stay in the same big old tent. After all, we're Jews. We have, we're all Jews. We all have some range of acceptance of Old Testament law. So fair enough, agree to disagree so that we can all move forward together. And to be clear, there are some areas in the life of the church, some some claims that demand that kind of unity. That kind of unity is demanded of us. I've given us a few examples of this over the years. The, the easiest ones to pivot to are found, you know, we preach through Genesis, we preach through Revelation. We see the beginning and the end of the Bible. In the first two chapters of the Bible, there are some non-negotiables. There's a creator that spoke everything that is not him into existence. Created everything out of nothing, Right? But the way he created, whether there's the seven literal day young earth creationism or a seven day old earth creationism or some kind of a gap theory or a longer period of time, there are a lot of different views that fit within the bounds of orthodoxy. At the end of the Bible, the same deal. We saw in Revelation various views on Jesus' millennial kingdom. There are some non-negotiables there too, things that we hold with a firm hand that Jesus is Literally, physically going to return to redeem and restore the world. But the way that happens, there are a lot of views that all fit within the bounds of orthodoxy. And so we hold those at Gospel Life Church with an open hand. And we have an elder team that have different convictions on both ends of that spectrum. Right? From within the bounds of orthodoxy. Right? But this passage helps us understand the error of taking that open-handed position about secondary issues and using it just across the board in a blanket way as our approach to everything, including primary issues. That is a mistake. Jesus does not do this. And, you know, depending on how you read verse 28, Jesus is either, and I kind of go back and forth, but I lean one way, I'll tell you. Jesus is either acknowledging that at least one aspect of their truth, their, their claim about him is true, essentially saying, yes, it's true that you know me. You know where I come from in an earthly sense. Or, and I actually think more likely, F.F. Bruce does a really good job arguing this, he's challenging them with something of a question, saying, um, wait, you claim to know me? You don't know, where, you don't know what you think you do. You, know, you claim to know me, you know where I come from? I think that fits well with the context of John's gospel, especially in places like uh, John 3, where Nicodemus says, we know that you're a teacher come from God, and Jesus throws that we know language back out there. As a way to, oh, really, you know? What do you know exactly, right? Um, we see something, I think, similar here. But either way, Jesus is using these words as a means of exposing their lack of knowledge. Ignorance exposed. It's, he's exposing their ignorance about him. Not in a way that's mean-spirited, but in a way that's merciful. Because they have to know who he is, and we'll see why in a little bit. Jesus says, I'm not here on my own. Because he who sent me, so that's just standard way of talking about God in John's gospel. We'll see it all over John's gospel. He who sent me is the way Jesus describes God. That's his term for God. In John's gospel, <clears throat> he who sent me is true. So the point here isn't that God is true in the sense of his faithfulness, like faithful and true, though certainly he is. But the point is rather that the God who sent him is true in the sense that he's real. That, you know, if Jesus was just making this all up, if he was just a man who isn't really who he claims to be, that he doesn't have divine origin, that he isn't himself God, that he isn't equal with God, that he isn't Messiah, then this God that he speaks of who sent him, this Father who sends the Son, would be a figment of his imagination. Right? 
Jesus is saying that's not the case. This God who sent Jesus is not in any way a figment of Jesus' imagination. This God who sent him is the one true God of Israel, the same God they claim to follow, and yet they should be concerned because Jesus says to them, listen, he's the one true God, he's the God of our forefathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and yet you do not know him. So we hear those words in a Western, increasingly skeptical and secular culture. It's not really that much of a blow. Jesus is talking in our culture and he says, yet yeah, you don't know the Father. I think collectively now there'd be more and more of a shrug. You know, like, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I don't believe in him. But for first century Israel... This is a real shot in their direction. Again, not in a mean-spirited way, but in a way that confronts their deepest idols. Why? Because one of their idols, <laughs> the idols of first century Israel, is that, and actually Israel, even in the Old Testament, is that the reason they're so privileged is because they know. They know God. Unlike these pagan nations around us, we know. You know, the New Testament talks a lot about knowledge puffing up. Paul talks a lot about knowledge puffing up. Believing that I have access to God, not because of his sheer grace or mercy toward me, but because I get it and what's wrong with everybody else. You know, Jesus is pushing on that idol here by saying, you don't know him. To this group of people that have prided themselves on being the, the ones who knew God. And, and they believe that it's because of something within them. Something about their brains. Something about their heart. Something about their receptivity. Right? So on the one hand, that's true. On the other hand, Jesus is also saying... If you are to really understand that God, if you, if you are really going to know what the law is about, you know, you claim, you claim to know God in the law, that God's made himself known, he's, he's disclosed himself to you in the Old Testament law. But, but if you look at John 5, 46, do you remember what does Jesus say? All of that law, it's about me, you know, it points to me, it directs you to me. And so the only way to know God truly, the only way to understand his word truly is to believe upon Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, in order to have genuine unity around the gospel of Jesus, this is really important, and this is really kind of the central theme that we're talking about here this morning. In order to have genuine unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ, there also needs to be a genuine dividing line. You can't have genuine unity around the gospel without an, a genuine dividing line, an actual place in which Here's truth. This is what the gospel is. This is what it means. It doesn't mean everything. It's, it's in Jesus as Jesus revealed himself to us, what it is that he's done for us. And in order to have true unity around the person of Jesus, you have to have also a true dividing line. Jesus is saying, it's me. How will you respond to me? If you can't discern me, how can you truly know God? You can't. Because within yourself... You're unable to know God. It brings to mind, right? So last week, Paul quoted C.S. Lewis, the, the liar, lord, lunatic argument again. It's like the fourth time in six weeks, I think, that we've done that. Myself too. I think two, two times, two or three times myself. We come back to it again and again, right? right? Because it's just so, so perfect for exactly what Jesus is saying. Um, but what makes it so helpful, it, re it revolves around the same question that keeps coming up. What are we to make of Jesus? What are you going to do about it? Um, but to give you a different voice to this quote, maybe we should switch this morning from C.S. Lewis to Bono. 
from U2. So Bono, not, not quite uh, put on the same philosophical pedestal as Lewis, but Bono is being interviewed. The interviewer switches to some of the claims that Bono had made about Jesus. And the interviewer says, Christ has his rank among the world's greatest thinkers, sure. But son of God, isn't that a little far-fetched? And Bono responds this way. He says, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ does not allow you that. Who's this sound like? Right? Okay. Christ does not allow you that. He doesn't let you off this, that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I'm God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. We had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word. Because you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no. I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from those creeps. But actually, I'm the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh my goodness, he's actually going to keep saying this. That's what's happening in John 7. Bono's expositing John 7. Then Bono concludes this way. He says, so what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. And yet here we move from skepticism revisited, the skepticism the crowd had, and ignorance, their ignorance exposed, to now reception divided because there are those who respond very similarly to Jesus here. And it's here that we get to the main point, I think. So look at verses 30 to 31. Uh, so they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will do, uh, will he do more signs than this man has done? So here we... We get to this main point. Carson says it this way. Taken together, these verses bear witness to the division. So all this taken together, and this being kind of the central center, the fulcrum. These verses bear witness to the division that takes place whenever the revelation of God in Jesus confronts human beings. Whenever the revelation of God, whenever God reveals himself in Jesus, and that confronts human beings, this is the division that takes place. And we're going to see more of that division set out in a unique way at the end of this chapter in just a couple weeks, okay? So it's not going to be anything new, and you're going to hear the, the, the same kinds of themes again. The more gospel is proclaimed in the book of John, yes, the more gospel belief we see. But yes, the more division, gospel division we see also, division about Jesus. And here that division comes in the form of opposition, and that opposition that happens in a couple of different ways. First, uh, number one, we, see, we have kind of a spontaneous reaction from the crowd to the teachings of Jesus. There's a spontaneous reaction. Some of the people are essentially saying, if nobody else is going to, if the leaders aren't going to do anything about this, if nobody else is going to do anything about this, we will get them. It's a clear rejection of Jesus and his teaching. It's a belief that he absolutely is either a maniac or something worse, should be put in prison. So first you see the spontaneous you know, in verse 30, they were seeking to arrest him. But another form of that opposition comes 
in a formal effort, so a spontaneous reaction, but then a formal effort to arrest him. Starting in verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. So, you know, you have in the text kind of a confusion on the part of the people who attempt to seize him spontaneously. You also have this anger on the part of the religious leaders who attempt to shut him down. Both of them understanding his clear claims of messiahship, clear claims of saying, like, I am God, right? He doesn't allow you that in-between response, and that's, we also don't see that in-between response in the text. But also not really understanding what it is that he's saying, you know, the claims that he's making in, in this text. The same crowd, you know, we're really coming back to where we were in the very beginning of this whole thing. Because the, the same crowd who thinks they already know where his origin is, like where he comes from, they can evaluate his beginnings, but are, who are completely clueless that in the beginning was the word, right? That same crowd, they think they can evaluate his origins, his beginnings. They also think they can evaluate where he's going, where he'll end up. They think they know all of it, you know? And yet, once again, they've missed it entirely. What is Jesus saying here? Well, remember from the text last week, nobody spoke openly about Jesus for fear of the religious leaders. And so Jesus himself is off limits for a topic of conversation. They didn't want him, we talked about this already, a little bit at the front end. They didn't want him to be even a topic of conversation, let alone the kind of mutterings that we see here. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. So now, it's not just that they're talking about Jesus, but they're muttering about his messiahship that doesn't stop him from continuing to make the claims. I'm going back again to be with my father, a place where you cannot follow me. So he's repeating these claims that we look at again and again. Yet neither group is successful in these bids to shut him down. All right, we're going to talk about what Jesus means by this in a minute. But first, like, look, neither one of these groups can, can stop him from making these claims, can arrest him. And the text tells us why. Look at verse 30 again. There's like a general statement made that tells us why the crowd can't do anything about it. And then we'll see a little more specifics in a couple weeks or next week. So they were seeking to arrest him. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. They were unable to do anything about it. Why? Because his hour had not yeah, come. Like, there would come a time, but this was not the time. All right? Um, we'll see in a couple of weeks, actually, verses 45 and 46. The, the temple guards, these aren't, the soldiers that are sent, they're not Roman soldiers. This is the temple guard. These are Jewish men. So they're sent to arrest Jesus formally. It's almost like a preview of the cross that we get here. It's a preview of Good Friday in which there's a formal effort from the part of the leaders to seize Jesus you know, so they send this detachment of temple guard to, to bring Jesus back. So they come back and they're asked, I don't want to steal any thunder, but they're asked, why, do you, why did you not bring him in? And the guards say, 
No one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke. They're hearing him teach. It's really interesting, right? Because they're commanded to go arrest him, and we don't hear anything about what happened. All we're told is Jesus is teaching. But you can envision here the, the temple guard coming. They're coming forward to arrest him, and like the crowd standing around, they're now in awe of what it is that he's saying and the claims that he's making. It's quite spectacular. So what he's saying is there would come a time, but now is not the time. There would come an hour, but this was not the hour. And as we've referenced before, when Jesus talks about the hour that is to come in John's gospel, what's he referring to? He's referring each time, and increasingly so, we will see it, to the cross. So that when in John chapter 2, when Jesus is at Cana for the wedding, and he's talking to his mom, and his mom says, we've got this problem with the wine. How does Jesus respond? My hour has not yet come. What did he mean by hour? And we see this word hour used here again and increasingly moving forward. The cross. There would come a time when the people would seize him angrily to kill him. We see a preview of that here. When, when the Jews would send officers to arrest him and he would be arrested and he would be tried and he would be crucified and he would be killed. For that is why he was born into the world to die on a cross for the very people who rejected him in order that he might save a people who would be united, they'd be unified in their claim that they're saved by grace through faith in Christ's work alone, not anything that they could ever do for themselves, not in some kind of hidden knowledge or wisdom that they possess, not in some bloodline or thing that they have as the Jewish people, but rather in Jesus and Jesus alone. And that unity would extend. It's really ironic, right, because... What do the Jewish people say here? What, what, what do the leaders, the religious leaders say here? They say, what does he mean he's going someplace where we can't go? Is he talking about this dispersion? The, in other words, the Jewish people that live in, in Greek nations all over the world have been scattered. Is he talking about going out there and talking to the Greeks? Well, that's not what he's talking about. But in doing what Jesus is talking about, the gospel of Jesus would go out to the dispersion of the Greeks. It would, it would go out to... Uh, Jews who were in Greek-speaking nations and to God-fearing Greeks who were coming into synagogues wanting to know who the Messiah is and irony of ironies, those are the exact same people that John addresses his gospel to. That's his primary audience. And so they're reading this, you know, okay, so there's a lot of irony here. And yet the people simply would not understand that Jesus is telling them that the way he would go back, so this is what Jesus is saying, he's going to go back to his father. He's going to go back to where he came from. But the way he would go back is his hour. The way he would go back, back to the Father, was through his death. Through the cross. And the reality is, therefore, this is a statement of warning. And we'll see it again. I'm not making it up. Uh, Jesus is telling them, look, the time is coming. The hour is coming. It's not now, but it's coming. The hour is coming. When you will look for me, but you will not find me because I am to be found at the cross. And by missing the cross, you will die in your sins. The hour is coming when you will look for me, but you will die in your sins. So we see actually that claim made. John chapter 8, verse 21, a preview of what we'll preach in a few weeks. So he said to them again, I am going away. And so he said to them again, so he's referencing this passage. He said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me. And you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is saying, I'm to be found at the cross. 
This is my purpose in coming. This is my hour that is to come. And if you're unwilling to realize your need for my death on your behalf, if you think that somehow you have access to God by way of your own effort and might, you'll miss me entirely. You miss me entirely. I say that this last section is entitled Reception is Divided because while there are those who reject him, right, so skepticism revisited, uh, ignorance exposed, now reception divided. I say that because, so some reject his message, but there are some who believe in the text. Right? There's some who, who believe, in, and, and more and more, we're going to see this. And, and in our time as a church, this is, this is crucial for us to see and understand. More and more, we'll see this. Gospel Life Church is called to continue to proclaim the gospel, the good news of Jesus' hour which was to come. His death on the cross on our behalf, his taking the burden of our sin and rebellion upon himself, that we might have life in him, that we might know him, right? Like, I was due death and judgment. Why? By virtue of my sin, by virtue of my standing before God, by virtue of my guilt, and every single person everywhere shares that guilt before the Father. We share that common guilt. But Jesus didn't leave us in our sins to die in our sins. He came that we might know him. He came to stand where we should have stood. He came to take our place on the cross that we might know God. He came to make the ultimate loving sacrifice, standing in our place as our substitute, that we might have life. And, and as we proclaim that, there will be many who cry out against it, right? And for various reasons, but most of it circling around the reality that we want to be in control of our own lives. So I don't need a savior because I can save myself. Whether that's through religious means of following, like I'm a good person, I can be a good enough person, you know? Or whether that's just through charting my own destiny and I don't need God as a part of that. Whether it's secular or religious, we'll often come to this and we'll cry out against it. What do you mean I need a savior? I can say, I'm a good person. I can save myself. I can. Jesus says the only way to know him is through his hour. It's through the cross. It's through what he came to do for you that you could never do for yourself. And so as a church, like Hamilton, let us say, I'd rather be divisive than indecisive as it relates to this gospel. Because it's only in the gospel that our friends can know God. You know, like it's not, it's, it's not unmerciful to say, we know that this gospel will bring division. We know that, it, that for, for many who hear it, it will not be something that leads to our popularity in culture. It will be something that's, that's despised. And so by virtue of that, we will be despised as well at times. But that's not unmerciful to therefore continue to proclaim it because mercy is only found here. So I'd rather be divisive in proclaiming a clear gospel that leads to life for those who need Christ than promote a false unity that leads to death. And this hour of God actually enables us to do that. Why? Because we know that in what Jesus has done, I have full acceptance from the Father. That because of what Christ has come to do, because of throwing myself on his mercies, I'm reconciled to that Father. I know him, right? We don't know him if we reject the cross. We know him if we throw ourselves at the mercies of, of Christ. 
right? And so because I'm known by God, because I'm accepted by him, I don't need praise from the surrounding world. So we can hold to that. And our unity as a church is grounded in the reality, therefore, of who Jesus is and what he has done. Our unity is found at the cross. And this is precisely why we come to the table each week in unity together to express the center of the gospel together. Like we have this table that the Lord commands us to observe. These ordinances that the Lord commands us to come and take. Why, why is it that when we walk together as a church, we all walk together? Why is it that when we take the elements, we bring them back to our seats, but we're not individually doing this? We're not like, you're not taking these elements out to some quiet space with you by yourself. You know, we're not doing that here, you know. Why is it that you're not kind of departing from everyone to have a private moment each week to do this? Why is it that we, that as a part of our liturgy, we take this back to our seats and together we take the juice and we receive the bread because it is a way for us to declare our unity in the gospel, to declare that together we believe this, to declare that we are a people who are united in this gospel and so this morning, if you're a believer, this meal is for you. It, it's, it's a declaration of what we believe that Jesus has done for us. And as that declaration, it is for those who believe. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer and you're not sure about Jesus and maybe you think you can save yourself and, and you want to be in control and all of those things, I would plead with you, throw yourselves on the mercies of Christ. Come to the table and, and take. Th these, these elements won't save you. They're a proclamation of that which has saved you, which is Jesus at the cross, which is his sacrifice for you. So I'd plead with you this morning. Throw yourself on his mercies. But if not, come and observe. Look, don't take. It's a proclamation of, of gospel belief. So I invite you forward. Take the elements, bring them back to your seats, and we will in unity receive them together.